Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be sharing a message from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. If you're looking for a church to call your own, a place to worship, and a people to worship with, let me invite you to join us at Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you need more information, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com. You can email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. We would love the opportunity to meet and connect with you. Again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing for First Kings. He's sharing a message entitled, How to Outlive Your Life. Let's listen together. We are not uh, at the present time in a book study from the Bible, which we usually do, uh, moving in an expository way through uh, a book of the Bible. But um, I just, uh, before we get into our next book study, wanted to spend a few Sundays uh, just sharing with you some random um, messages, and not random in the sense of accidental or coincidental, but uh, random in the sense of not necessarily uh, being tied closely to one another, uh, but some thoughts uh, in regards to uh, how we might more deeply encounter and experience uh, the Lord in this new year, as well as how we might more effectively serve Him this coming year, maybe than we did last year. Last Sunday we talked about how to encounter God in 2022, and we use as our example kind of a follow-up to the Christmas story, the story of uh, two senior adults, Simeon and Anna, uh, who uh, saw the Lord Jesus when he was brought to the temple uh, to there be dedicated uh, to the Lord and to be presented as was the custom uh, of uh, Jews in Jesus' day, as was the command of the Old Testament law. And Simeon and Anna both recognized and saw Jesus and knew that he was the promised Messiah when hundreds of other people all around totally missed it. It just went over their heads. They didn't see this uh, little child any different than any other child, just as so many did not recognize his birth. Uh, only a handful of shepherds were uh, aware of who this was. All the other folks of Bethlehem, it just got by them, and they, uh, they went on business as usual. And you know the same is somewhat true today. There are people who see Christ and who recognize His work in their lives and around them, while there are others who it just, it just goes by them, and for them it's business as usual. And we talked about how Simeon and Anna, uh, how they encountered God, maybe because of some of the attitudes uh, that they possessed within them. They were two people of unselfish dedication. They devoted themselves to the worship of God and the service of God in and around the temple, living and serving there uh, 24-7. Not only that, but they uh, had a divine insight 
they saw what others did not. And uh, it takes a spiritual insight to recognize God, even in Scripture. You can't read the Word with your natural eyes and try to understand it with your natural mind and expect to get the message of it. We need the interpretation. We need the insight that only comes through the Holy Spirit. They were people of an eager expectation. They were looking for the Messiah. They were living for that day. They were people of faith. And because of that, their faith became sight. They were people who were committed to sharing what God showed them. They had a ready proclamation. In both cases, they declared outwardly that this was the Messiah. And God is going to entrust His truth to those who are willing to share it with others. Well, that's what we learned from Simeon and Anna. Today we want to learn some lessons from a prophet by the name of Elisha. And I want to talk to you about how you can outlive your life. How you can outlive your life. In the last two weeks, we have lost two of our precious church members uh, to death. But though they are, are gone, though they are now in the presence of the Lord, though they no longer sit here with us, understand their influence lives on. And that is the only thing, the only part of your life, in my life, that will walk back from the grave when we die. The only thing that will outlive us is our influence for better or for worse, for good or for bad. This is a, uh, a valueless truth, meaning the value of it can go either way. An evil, unfaithful, lack of love for God, that kind of influence will continue to live on just as much as an influence of a person who loved God with all their heart. What will it be like for you? One day, you won't be sitting where you're sitting. One day, I won't be standing where I'm standing. We will have passed on to, hopefully, our heavenly home. But our influence will live on. What kind of influence will it be? Let me share uh, uh, two or three key truths with you. I'm going to share two of them with you before we get into the outline of our message and before we, we read the text. Uh, and actually, I'm going to share some verses with you on the screen that will start way over towards the end of the New Testament with a principle, and then we will move backwards to our text to see uh, where that principle is fleshed out in a person's life. The first key truth is this. What the New Testament teaches in principle, the Old Testament demonstrates or teaches in picture. This isn't always true, but it's often true. That what the New Testament teaches in a statement or a verse or a phrase, oftentimes we can go to the Old Testament and we can find a picture or a story that illustrates that truth. Do you understand this principle? 
What's taught over here in a principle is often fleshed out back here in a story. Now, let me give you a New Testament principle. Let's put Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Would you do that? Let's read it in unison together. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That's Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 the great faith chapter of the Bible. The story is Cain and Abel, and the application here is specifically on Abel, that he was a man of faith, and though he died, he still speaks. Heard any voices from the dead lately? I hear them all the time. I do. I hear voices from the dead all the time. I hear the voice of my grandfather and the things that I learned from him. I hear the lessons from my grandmother. I hear from professors that taught me in college. And I'm not talking about literally hearing voices like you hear mine, but I'm reminded of things that I learned, lessons that were taught to me, uh, advice that was given to me. And every, very few original thoughts ever came to me. I get good ideas from everybody else. I have the spiritual gift of plagiarism. <laughs> Well, not completely. Do you hear voices from the dead? People that you love, that help shape and form, form your life, and though they've long since been gone, you still hear, you still remember, you're still being blessed by what they said. Well, that's a New Testament principle. Let, let me read to you, or let's read together, uh, the Old Testament picture or story it's, it's an amazing story. It's only about two verses long, and it's tucked into a chapter almost disconnected from what comes before it or what comes after it. It's a strange, strange story, and it's found in 2 Kings chapter 13. Let's put this on the board. Read this with me. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. If there's one place in the Old Testament I wish I could go back and be a part of. It would be that funeral party on that day. As the procession made its way, the hearse out in front, as they leave the funeral home and head to the cemetery, and they're about to bury this, this man, or this uh, person that died, this unnamed man, and about the time they got ready for the graveside service, here comes a marauding band of Moabites. They are the bad guys. 
And so immediately the pallbearers, they take the body of their dead friend and they toss it into the, gra- into the grave of Elisha, which was a, a cave. And they tossed his body in there and they all ran and hid behind the rocks till the band of Moabites passed by. They came back to give their friend a proper burial and they found him sitting there, maybe scratching his head, wondering what he's doing in the cemetery. The moment he touched the bones of Elisha, he revived. He being dead, yet speaketh. Although Elisha was dead and gone and there was nothing left but his bleached white bones, he still was God's tool for bringing miracles to the lives of others. A story, a picture that illustrates a point, a principle. Well, I find all that really fascinating. Let me give you key truth number two. Then we're going to back up and actually read our text. These verses teach the awesome power of influence, of Influence. Influence cannot be buried. It continues to live on. So the question that I ask is, okay, why did Elisha's bones still, and this was not some matter of supernatural, magical power. They didn't, you know, they didn't take these bones and go around the countryside healing other people, raising other people from the dead. This was an isolated event. It was a supernatural event that illustrates a spiritual truth, the truth of influence. So why did Elisha, even long after he was dead, still bear such power, such influence in the lives to bless others. I think we find the answer when we go back to where Elisha very first enters the pages of Scripture. And that's 1 Kings chapter 19. Now let me tell you what's happening leading up to this. Before Elisha, the great prophet of the day was Elijah. They are not related, though their names are very similar. But Elijah was a faithful servant of the Lord in very unfaithful times. He had a hard way to go as the spokesman for God because there was Ahab and Jezebel constantly trying to kill him. He was having to bear a message that nobody wanted to hear. And so Elijah got very discouraged And the Bible teaches us earlier in chapter 19 that he went 40 days into the wilderness to Mount Horeb. He went so far away from Israel and Judah, he went to where the law of God was given to Moses way back earlier in the Old Testament. And there he was all alone with God and God came and spoke to him, not in an earthquake, not in some great manifestation of power, but a still, small voice. And God encouraged him. God gave him his marching orders. He told him what message he still had for him to preach and to bear. And he said, and by the way, tell the king of Israel this, Tell the king of Syria this, 
And also, you need to go find a man by the name of Elisha, and you need to anoint him to take your place. Your ministry is entering into its final phase. And so that's the text. When we get up to verse 19 of chapter 19, it says, So he, speaking of Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Three reasons why Elisha had such a powerful influence and impact on others even after he was dead. The first reason. Elisha had God's anointing. Elisha had God's anointing. Verse 19 said, He departed from there, found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve, 12 yoke of oxen. Do you reckon he had, tw- a yoke is a pair. you reckon he had 12 line? That's a powerful tractor, Brother Don. 12 yoke of oxen in a line. Maybe it's 12 different pairs plowing. If that's the case, he was an extremely wealthy man. Either way it was, a man who lived in this day and time, if he had one yoke of oxen, one pair of oxen, that was a great blessing. Elisha had 12. And the Bible said that Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak, his mantle, upon him. What is this mantle? What is this cloak? Well, it's the outer garment, but particularly in the case of a prophet, it is a prophetic garment. It is a mantle that denotes who he is as the man of God. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't embroidered. It didn't have gold threads woven through it. It wasn't anything like a a priestly robe. But it was recognized that if you saw from a distance that man Elijah, you knew from the cloak that he wore that he was the man who speaks for God. And so Elijah walked out into that plowed field. I can just imagine him holding up his garments and walking over that plowed ground taking off this mantle and putting it on the shoulders of Elisha, maybe with no other words spoken. And both men knew exactly what it meant, that Elisha had been chosen to replace Elijah as the one who speaks for God. It symbolized an anointing. 
Now, I realize that we as Baptists are kind of uncomfortable with that word, anointing, because if you turn on the TV, especially some of those networks that just plays religious stuff 24 hours a day, about four-thirds of what you hear is going to be nonsense. Yes, I said four-thirds on purpose. Most of what you hear is going to be some charismatic hoodoo stuff. And they talk about an anointing now and here and there and all kinds of stuff. And they, they, anyway, let me say this, that that's not what the anointing is. In the Old Testament, if you remember, there were three classes of people that were anointed. Do you remember what they are? You ought to know this. We talked about this extensively just last month. Prophets, priests, and kings. What was the act of anointing? It was taking oil and pouring it over their heads. There was nothing magical, nothing mystical about that. It was a symbolic gesture that basically symbolized, if it was done according to the Lord, not just according to man, but according to the Lord, if this was the chosen one, like Aaron was the first priest chosen, and Psalm 133 talks about the oil being poured out on Aaron's head that flowed down on his beard and on his garments, and how beautiful that was in the sight of God. Why? Because it symbolized something very special. The oil is a symbol in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And remember that in the Old Testament, all believers did not possess or have living in them and on them the Holy Spirit as we do today. And so, like Samson, the Spirit would come on him but the Spirit also left him. Like King Saul, the Spirit, the Bible said at the beginning of his, of his kingship, the Spirit rushed upon him. But later the Spirit departed from him. The Spirit would come and go. And this anointing symbolized the person that God has chosen. So uh, this idea of an anointing, and we take for granted that just as Elijah was anointed as a prophet, that later Elisha was anointed proper. But understand, the mantle, the cloak being placed on his shoulders, was symbolic of the very same thing. Now, what the anointing is not, this is where we differ with our charismatic friends, it is not a second blessing or some second work of grace in your life where you get Jesus as your Savior at one time, but later get the Holy Spirit and His power at another time. It doesn't work that way for us in New Testament times. That salvation and the coming and the, the abiding of the Spirit on our lives happens all at the same time. You have an anointing from God. I'll show you some verses that shows us that in just a moment. It's not a second blessing. It's not some kind of random empowering that the Spirit comes upon you and you can do supernatural things just randomly. It is not a state of sinlessness that you've moved uh, beyond the point of committing sin. You've now reached a stage of perfection 
as some teaches. The anointing is none of that. Well, what is it then? It symbolizes three things. It symbolizes, number one, sovereign choice. This person is God's chosen for the moment, for the task, for whatever it is. It was God that told Elijah, find Elisha and anoint him to take your place. God chose Elisha. It is sovereign choice. It symbolizes also divine empowerment. Don't read that as some kind of supernatural lay a hand on someone and heal them. You haven't been given that, neither have I. But it is an enablement. It is a supernatural, a divine enablement that we can speak for God. We can work for God in this world. And it also symbolizes that there will be supernatural or spiritual results as a result of God working through us. Sovereign choice, divine enablement, supernatural or spiritual results. At the same time this mantle touched Elisha's shoulders, God was touching his heart. And here's the truth for you and me. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, twice, that we have an anointing from God. All saved people. Verse 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, speaking of spiritual insight. We all have an anointing from God. He has chosen us. He, he, chosen us. he is empowering us. He's going to use us. Verse 27, But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have the anointing, the hand of God, on your life and in your life. All right? Well, I hope that makes some sense to you. Elisha received this anointing from God. A second thing, second reason why God used Elisha in such a powerful way is that in response to that anointing, Elisha made a bold commitment to follow God's will for his life. To follow God's will for his life. We see this in verse 21. It said, And Elisha returned from following Elijah and took the yoke of oxen and he sacrificed them. And he boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. He killed a yoke of oxen, his mark of his trade, of who he was. He killed that yoke of oxen. He took the yoke off their shoulders, and he chopped it up into wood and built a fire. And he cooked those, that pair of oxen and gave it to his family and friends to eat. All of this was an act that demonstrated he was leaving what he was to become what God called him to be. Now, understand this. If you're saved, if you're truly saved, you have the Spirit of God in your life 
and on your life. You have an anointing. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with what God does when he saves a person. But when it comes to these next two points in Elisha's life, this requires a choice. It requires obedience. It requires you and me cooperating with God. He made a bold commitment to follow and to become what God wanted him to be, to follow God's will. He could have rejected this call. He could have taken that mantle off his shoulders and thrown it back in Elijah's face and said, listen, I've got a good thing going here. Don't tamper with my life. But Elisha had a different view of God than that. I'm going to suggest to you that even before he knew that God wanted him to be a prophet, Elisha was already surrendered to the will of God for his life. And so when this event took place, when it had been revealed to him, God had something different than being a successful farmer, a successful businessman. Instead, that God wanted him to be the man who speaks for him in this world as the voice of God, as the prophet of the land. He was willing to change directions. He could turn on a dime. Why? Because his life already belonged to God. You know why it's so hard for you and me to do God's will? Because we got too much stinking self-will inside of us. We got too much of our own plans. You know why it's so hard for us to live for the kingdom of God? Because we care too much about the kingdom of man and the kingdom of me. Elisha was willing to embrace the will of God. I want, you to, I want to suggest to you that this act of burning, uh, of sacrificing the oxen and, and burning and, and cooking the sacrifice and giving it to his friends and his, and his family in this celebration of God's calling and is also a farewell, a farewell uh, event for him to leave his family. I want to suggest to you that it was an act of obedience. He was obeying God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. If we're having trouble in some area of obedience, it, it, we need to look to our hearts. We need to look to our love because that's where the problem is. You see, we see our lives so wrong. We see it in slices of a pie. This part of my life, I've surrendered to God, but this part of my life, I'm going to hang on to myself. Whether it has to do with your occupation, whether it has to do with your service and your commitment to the Lord and His church, whether it has to do with your finances, wherever the disobedience is, wherever you're having trouble obeying God, it is a matter of lack of love for God. If you love me, you will obey me. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 15. It was an act of obedience on Elisha's part. It was an act of sacrifice on his part. 
Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anybody will come after me, let him do, do what? Do you remember? Let him deny himself, learn to say no to himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's an act of sacrifice. It was an act of worship, of worship. This was a worshipful thing that he did when he slew this pair of oxen and when he boiled their flesh and when he ate it and gave it to his family to eat. It was an act of worship. How do I know that? Because Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 tells us, Paul says, I beseech you. That's how the King James puts it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies or because of the mercies of God, present yourself as a sacrifice to God. It is your spiritual act of worship. Of worship. It was an act of celebration. I remember getting home from church camp when I had surrendered to the ministry on a Friday night. I hadn't told my parents yet. I've, I've told this, I think related this story to you. I remember getting back from church camp. I was 16 years old, and my cousins were at church camp with me, and, and we got into the back seat of Aunt Marilyn's station wagon. She was going to drive me home, and I said, Guess what, Aunt Marilyn? I surrendered to preach. And I never will forget, talk about voices from the dead. I remember the look on her face as she turned and looked over her shoulder and said, Oh, Kirky, tell me you didn't. She could call me Kirky, you can't. <laughs> to her, that was the worst thing in the world. Not because she didn't love God, but because she didn't love God enough. <laughs> because she'd had a brother that was a minister, and she saw some of the hardships he went through because of that. She didn't want that for me. She was like a second mom to me. Well, often she was like a first mom to me. But understand, this was an act, this was a celebration. It was a, it, it was a time of singing praises to the Lord as the family gathered, and as this man made this symbolic gesture that cost him something, to walk away from this and take upon himself this calling. It was an act of celebration. Psalm 100, the old 100th, talks about coming to the Lord's house and coming with singing and rejoicing. And it says we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. And I would remind you that sheep went into the temple grounds just like people did. But for them it was a one-way trip. They were going as sacrifices. We are his people coming to worship. We are his people coming to sacrifice ourselves. Is that the way you come to church on Sunday morning? It ought to be. It ought to be that way for all of us. It was, fifthly, an act of finality. An act of finality. Why? Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, no man puts his hand to the plow, interesting expression in light of this story, puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Why? Because if you take hold of this, which is a, it's something that's only useful as you're going forward, and you do this, 
you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said. And so Elisha didn't take hold of this new plow, this service for God, with a backward glance thinking, well, if it doesn't work out in ministry, I'll go do something else. Men all over this country in the last year are walking away from ministry because for the first time in many of their lives, it has gotten hard. They had their hands on the plow, but they were looking over their shoulder. Jesus said, that's not the way that it works. So we understand that Elisha had God's anointing. He made a bold commitment to follow God's will. There was no turning back. No turning back. Let me give you a third reason why God used Elisha. It's also found in verse 21 in the last sentence of the chapter. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Underline the word assisted. He was God's chosen, Elisha was, He had God's anointing. Elijah recognized that and helped identify him to speak for God. He spoke for God and said, God wants you, Elisha. Elisha could have left everything and demanded that he now be the person in charge, but he didn't. He assisted, he served Elijah. Elisha had a servant's heart. A servant's heart. If we had the time today, we could turn over to the book of 2 Kings, about two or three chapters later. And 2 Kings chapter 2, make a note of that and read it this afternoon, especially the first 15 verses. And it talks about Elisha serving Elijah. And Elijah said to Elisha when they were at Gilgal, Listen, Elisha, you can just stay here. I have business. I have to go to Bethel. And Elisha said, Absolutely not. Where you go, I go. I'm sticking to you like glue. I am your servant. I have given my life to this. So Elisha followed Elijah to Bethel. And when he got to Bethel, Elijah said, Elisha, you can stay here. It's not necessary for you to go with me any further. I've got to go all the way down to Jericho. And that's a dangerous journey. That's a hard journey. And Elijah said, no way. I'm going with you. I'm sticking with you like glue. I am your servant. I've been called to that. So he follows Elijah to Jericho. And there it says there were a group of young men. The Bible refers to them as the school of the prophets. They were young prophets going to seminary. They were in training. They were learning how to speak for God, how to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And Elijah was their primary professor. And the young school of the prophets, these uh, these young men, they saw Elijah coming and they saw Elisha with him. And Elijah says, now, Elisha, you can stay here in Jericho. I've got to go down to the Jordan. It was a mile or two away. And Elisha said, no, I'm going with you. You know that I'm going to stick with you like glue. So they got down to the Jordan River. 
And then Elijah takes that prophetic mantle off of his shoulders. You see, he was still the primary prophet. And he took it, and he rolled it up, and he twisted it, and he knelt down, and he said, Where is the God of Israel? And he slapped the river with it, and the waters parted, just like the Red Sea. And Elijah and Elisha walked over on dry ground. Elijah said, You don't have to go over there. That's the wilderness. Elisha said, I'm with you. And he went with him. And they crossed over. And they went over the rise. And the, prof, the young prophets, they saw him until they disappeared from sight. And then it was just Elijah and Elisha in the wilderness. And all of a sudden there came that fire from God and a chariot from heaven that came down for Elijah. And both men exclaimed about the power of God and the and the, this vision that God gave him, but it was real, and this fiery chariot comes down, and it scoops up Elijah, and he is taken to heaven without dying. And Elisha is watching all this, and even as it took Elijah into the heavens, that prophetic garment, that mantle, fell off of his shoulders and lie there on the ground at Elisha's feet. Now it was is. And Elisha picks it up and puts, on, puts it on his shoulders, goes back over the ridge, goes back over the hills, and comes back down to the Jordan River. And there's those young preacher boys on the other side, still watching to see if their master Elijah was going to come back. But they saw both men go over the rise, and only one came back, and it was Elisha. And now it was a time to put God to the test. And Elisha takes it off, and he rolls it up like Elijah did. And he said, where is the God of Elijah? And he struck the waters. If nothing had happened, he would have been a useless fraud. But the waters parted for Elisha just like they did for Elijah. If you remember, Elisha had responded to Elijah. During those last moments, Elijah said, What would you like for me to do for you? And Elisha said, I want nothing except a double portion of the Spirit that rests on you. I want a double portion of that in my life. I don't know if it's true. I've never counted. But I've heard it said that if you read the story of Elijah in Scripture and you count the number of miracles that are attributed to him in Scripture and then you read the story of Elisha and the number of miracles that are attributed to him in Scripture, God used Elisha to perform twice as many miracles as he did Elijah, at least as far as what's recorded in Scripture. And those preacher boys saw Elisha, the new prophet. They saw the waters part for him as he came across on dry ground. And that begins the rest of the story. After he had had a productive ministry and died many years later, that funeral procession came to the cemetery where his bones, all that was left of Elisha. And when this dead man touched those bones, 
life came back into him. His heart began to beat. His lungs began to breathe. This man got to go back home to be with his wife and his children and his grandchildren because there was a man of God who was willing to follow God boldly, a full commitment of his life. A man who had a servant's heart. And that's the key truth. That's the third uh, great truth here. And it is the people that God uses to make an impact on the world and around them are the ones who have a heart for ministry to serve others. An anointing of God, that's all God's business. And all of you that are saved are the recipients of God's business. He's given you an anointing. The question is, will you make a bold commitment to follow? To follow God's will, whatever it is, whatever it'll cost you. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself? Are you willing to obey Him in all areas of your life? And will you serve others? You see, Jesus taught that principle of service. He said that whoever would be first among you would be your servant, right? He taught that, Matthew 20. Jesus demonstrated that very principle of servanthood when he washed the disciples' feet the night before he was crucified. And in the book of Acts, we read many examples, but one in particular of that principle. Do you remember when Peter came to Joppa and there there was a woman who had died by the name of Tabitha, also known as Dorcas? Do you remember that? And he came there and the whole church was there mourning and they were, uh, they were so sad that, that um, uh, this fine woman was lost. She had died. But Peter went in and spoke and raised her from the dead. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she came back to life. They were showing him all of the tunics that she made, all the things she did to serve the church. They were going to miss her so bad. Well, God gave her back to the church. I always find that so interesting. When Peter died, God left him dead. That's enough of him. Church doesn't need him anymore. He's gone. When Paul died, God left him dead. Every apostle, when they died, God left them dead. But here was this one woman, insignificant, in this one church, who had such a heart for service that when she died, the Lord determined, you know, the church still needs her. And he raised her from the dead. That's how God looks at servants. Servants. Well, our challenge is this. What kind of legacy will we leave behind us? What impact will our lives have even after we are dead and buried? Elisha is the illustration. He had God's anointing. He made a bold commitment to follow. He had a heart for ministry. Revelation 14, speaking of the end times, says this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. 
those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Their works, their influence, outlive their lives. What will your influence leave behind? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing truth. Father, there are people who live today, maybe someone in this church even, that still hurt, that still experience great pain or trauma or shame from the lives of a parent or someone that lived before them. The legacy that was left by that person was damaging and hurtful even today. Father, give deliverance from that evil influence, from that hurtful influence. Father, thank you for the people that influenced us towards you that still today bless us as we think about them, as we rejoice in what you did and are doing through our lives, in our lives through them. May we live the kind of life that will still shine for you long after we draw our final breath. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.